The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Good morning. As Brad said, um, I'm John Kegley. Some of you know me as the faceless name behind the office at shadesvalley.org email. Um, Some of you know me as the nameless face, person running around here on Sunday mornings trying to make sure everything is in order and the service will go smoothly. Some of you know me as the person who tries to tame your kids on Wednesday nights, the youth group, tries to teach them a thing or two about the Lord. But this morning I get to be a preacher to you. You get to know me as a preacher. And to me, it's ironic that I was asked to preach on Proverbs 3 this morning. And it's ironic because in the first part of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, um, there are several speeches. There's these discourses from a father to a son. And chapter 3 is one of these speeches. It's one of these discourses. I'm, I'm not a father that I know of. Uh, You were not all fathers. Some of you are children. Some of you are daughters, sisters, and mothers. What does Proverbs 3 have to offer to us? Better yet, what could I possibly tell you, based upon my own limited experiences and life circumstances, what could I possibly tell you about how to live wisely in a relationship with God? The truth is nothing apart from This book, I have nothing to give to you about how to live wisely in a relationship with the Lord. Apart from the book of Proverbs, we cannot learn to live wisely in the relationship with the Lord. So before we get into Proverbs 3, let's pray and ask for the Lord to be with us. Father, we offer our hearts and our minds to you this morning. Speak to us, we pray, by your Spirit. Amen. When our culture, or maybe when you think of a wise person, you might think of someone like Mother Teresa, or Gandhi maybe, or Socrates. Our culture has this idea of a wise person as this person who renounces the world, this person who has these wise sayings and teachings, who embrace this counter-cultural attitude. And these people seem to possess this aura of wisdom, this status of a wise person that we as ordinary and common people could never possess. This is the picture that the world gives us of a wise person. But while people like Socrates and Gandhi and Mother Teresa appear to be wise people to us sometimes and to our world, The Bible claims that the wise person is every single person who embraces a relationship with the triune God and places faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. You see, according to the Bible, true wisdom is not for the wise sages like Socrates or Gandhi, but for every single person who places faith in Jesus Christ, for me and for you. Whereas the world sees wisdom as something for the elite few, the Bible sees wisdom as something for all who embrace a relationship with the triune God, the fount of wisdom itself. Now, our culture is not only wrong in its idea of the wise person, it's also wrong in how it defines wisdom. 
See, in our culture, wisdom is defined as, although we probably don't think of or use the word wisdom in our cultural, popular culture context, but our culture does advocate for a type of wisdom. And that type of wisdom is this. Trust in yourself. Trust in your own personal autonomy and resources with all of your heart. And lean only on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge yourself and you will make your path straight. That's the wisdom our culture advocates for. The wisdom of our culture claims that all values and virtues are just relative. There's no right way to live or wrong way to live. There's not a wise way to live or a foolish way to live. I get to determine for myself what is the wise way for me to live, and you get to determine for yourself what the wise way for you to live. There's no wise living. There's no foolish living. There's only my version of living and your version of living. For someone or something like the Bible to claim that to be wise, you must, must live a certain way. It's just exclusive. It's prideful. This is what our culture tells us. Why should we, why should you listen to the wisdom of the Bible and the wisdom of Proverbs? Isn't it just a bunch of outdated advice? This is what our culture tells us. The truth is, God has created us for a relationship with Himself. God has created us for a relationship with with himself. And in the book of Proverbs, God has given us his people sure and certain and timeless principles, instructions, and commandments for how we are to live wisely before him and before the world. And ultimately, in Jesus Christ, God has perfectly revealed his wise character in the apparent foolishness of the cross. And he's also given us an example with Jesus, of how to perfectly live in a relationship with God. God has created and ordered our world in a specific way. All is not random. All is not chance. All is not relative. He has masterfully arranged the world with orderly and objective laws, principles, rules, and limitations. And the beauty of Proverbs is that God in His grace and His mercy has given us a book. He's given us the book of Proverbs and the whole of the Bible as a template, as a map, as we try to navigate this world in which we live. Proverbs 3, where we'll be this morning, serves as a steady and certain compass to us as we fight the raging winds, the violent seas, and the stormy patterns of this life. So that brings us to Proverbs 3. If you haven't opened your Bibles already, please, please do so now. Proverbs 3 assumes that we have already committed to a relationship with God. It assumes that we have already embraced wisdom, the fear of the Lord, as Brad preached about last week. It already assumes this. It assumes that we have already committed alone our whole lives to the Lord. Before we learn how to live wisely in a relationship with God, we must believe in the triune God and place our faith in Jesus Christ, wisdom himself. Before you can live wisely in a relationship with God, your relationship with him must be restored by repentance and faith in the blood of Jesus. Before we can live wisely in this world, we must receive salvation by grace through faith in the crucified Jesus Christ. 
Once we have done that, it's only once we have done that that we can begin to learn how to live wisely in a relationship with God. So that's where we are. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12. Proverbs 3, 1 through 12 offers six pieces of advice for us as God's people. Six pieces of advice for how we are to live rightly with God in this world. And in verses 1 through 12, there's a lot of the major themes of the rest of Proverbs in just these few verses. It's like a Proverbs for, for dummies. I don't know if you grew up with those little books, but it's, that's what these verses are like, a Proverbs for dummies. And Proverbs 3 understands that our deepest need is to have a right relationship with God and to live rightly before Him. And so it gives us these pieces of advices for, for us so that we can live wisely before God in this world. So we're going to try to go through each one of these with our time here this morning. So look down with me, if you would, to Proverbs 3, verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Piece of advice number one. We live wisely in our relationship with God by remembering His teaching and obeying His commandments from the heart. We live wisely in our relationship with God by obeying, by remembering His teaching and obeying His commandments from the heart. This chapter begins with a father addressing his son. It says, My son. Many, many uh, commentators note that, like I said earlier, the first half of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9, are these speeches from a father to a son. Chapter 1, verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son. 3, verse 1. My son. Chapter 4, verse 1. Oh, hear, O sons, a father's instructions. So on and so forth. If the first part of Proverbs is a father's instruction to his son, what can we learn from it? We're not all sons. We're all, some of us are daughters. Some of you are mothers and fathers. Well, while the first half of Proverbs primarily contains instructions from a father to a son, on a larger scale, the instructions are even more for us because the book of Proverbs was written for every single person who has embarked on the path of wisdom in the fear of the Lord. In other words, the instructions from the father to the son have become the father's instructions to us, his church. Because we, like the son, have chosen the narrow path of wisdom and not the wide path of folly. Let me say that again. The instructions from the father to the son in Proverbs 3 have become the Father's instruction to us, His church, because we, like the Son, have chosen the narrow path of wisdom and not the wide path of folly. So piece of advice number one. We live wisely in a relationship with God by remembering His teaching and obeying His commandments from the heart. The teaching and commandment here, commandment here in uh, this first verse are likely synonyms referring back to the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The father is instructing his son to hold fast to God's commandments as they were revealed to the patriarchs and Abraham and throughout the Old Testament. I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word commandment. Some of you may hear, when I say that, some of you may respond by thinking, a commandment is something that enslaves me. It prevents me from being my full self. It prevents me from expressing my full potential as an individual. We're going to call this attitude towards commandment the attitude of license. 
Some of us, when we think of the word commandment, we kind of like them. It gives us security and comfort and stability. It's something that we can hope in as we try to outperform the Christians sitting next to us in our pews. The first verse of Proverbs 3 provides warnings against both the attitude of license and the attitude of legalism. See, God has placed limitations on us, His people, His church. We are intended to function in a certain and specific way as God's people. And God gives us commandments, or better translated as instructions, not as a cruel master or an abusive parent, but as a loving and gracious father who wants to guide his children in the way he has organized the world, the way of wisdom. You see, fish are able to breathe underwater because God has given them gills to absorb the oxygen in the water. We have lungs. Fish have gills. Now, suppose one day a really modern and sophisticated fish decided that because he, and yes, I'm assuming his gender, he was a more modern and sophisticated fish. He didn't want to live in the ocean anymore. He decides he wants to live upon the land. However, his father continues to remind him and to instruct him that he's a fish. He can't, can't, can't just grow lungs. He has to live the fish's way of life. But he ignores his father's instructions. He's a millennial fish. He can do what he wants. He doesn't need the outdated advice of his parents anymore. So one day he sneaks away in the night and he swims from the middle of the ocean to the shore. And of course, he knows he needs lungs. He's not a foolish fish. He was taught in his fish fish school that he needs lungs if he's going to be an animal. So his plan is just to muster up enough faith, just to believe that he has the ability to grow the lungs he needs to breathe out of the water. And they'll just magically come to be. He's a modern fish. He knows that he can do whatever he sets his mind to. He knows that he, if he just follows his dreams to grow lungs and live upon the land, he can do it. So he finally catches a wave and gets washed upon the shore. And despite his dreams, his passion, and his faith to grow lungs and live upon the land, he dies. He dies. His lungs do not miraculously grow as he believed they would. He can't live outside of the water as he dreamed. And he dies because he did not heed his father's instructions or recognize his God-given limitations and capacities as a fish. Some of us here today are like this fish. We embrace an attitude of license. We forget and ignore God's instructions and commandments because we think we know better than him. Sometimes in the world we live in, God's commandments can seem like outdated and irrelevant and sometimes even oppressive to people in our culture. I mean, do you really believe that an ancient book like the Bible can tell me what kind of person that I can marry? Do you believe that that old dusty book can tell me what I can and can't do with my own body? Do you really believe that that book of your grandparents can tell me how to use my money? Do you really think that that ordinary book can tell me how to live my own life? Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, do not fall prey to these kinds of questions. 
God has established a just order in this world, and He has given us commandments so that we may live properly, rightfully, fruitfully, and beautifully in His created world. To neglect God's commandments is as foolish as a fish trying to grow lungs. To forsake our Creator's instructions is as as unwise as a fish who wants to live outside of the water. God has given us limitations as His creatures, and He has graciously given us proper guidelines, teachings, and commandments to live within these limitations. Therefore, to forsake God's instructions and commandments is to forsake God Himself, life itself, and it's to swim towards a shore of death. Just as Adam and Eve forsook God's commandments to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they died, so too, when we forsake God's good and loving commandments for our lives, we will die. As I just explained, some of us embrace the attitude of license. We don't want to follow God's commandments. On the other hand, some of us, some of you, embrace the attitude of legalism. That is, you like God's commands because you can religiously and zealously follow them to prove to everyone else that you are the best Christian. Some of us obey God's commandments only to gain a good reputation within our community. The first verse of Proverbs 3 provides warnings against the attitude of legalism that I just talked about, because it reminds us that what God desires is not merely obedience, but affectionate obedience. This verse says, if you look down at verse 1, let your heart... Let your hearts keep my commandments. And we read about God's desire for His people's affectionate obedience throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your might. And we read about this in the New Testament too. Yes, Jesus' death, no longer, we no longer need to sacrifice. We no longer need to follow the political commandments that Israel needed to. But Jesus' death does not abolish the need for our obedience to Him. Jesus' death does not abolish our need to obey. Just as the people of Israel in the Old Testament lived out their relationship with God by obeying His commandments, so too we, the church, live out our relationship with God by obeying His commandments. Chiefly to love Him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, to go and make disciples of all nations, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Of course, these commandments can't save us. They're not meant to save us. We don't follow the commandments of the New Testament to be saved, but because we have been saved by grace through faith. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes from being in a relationship with Jesus, can we begin to follow the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. From the first verses of Proverbs 3, we learn that to live wisely in a relationship with God, we need to be wary of both attitudes of license and legalism. By wedding God, obedience to God's commands with affection and love for God Himself. And I'm not saying we're going to do this perfectly or sincerely every single day, but as we strive to obey God's commands, as We should try to obey him as a spouse tries to love and serve his or her husband or wife on their best day. And according to verse 2 of Proverbs chapter 3, 
by remembering and obeying God's commandments with our whole being, not just our outward acts, we will live long, happy lives full of God-filled joy and peace. Shalom. Let's move on to the second piece of advice here. Proverbs 3, 3-4. Three Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Piece of advice number two. We live wisely in our relationship with God by taking hold of His covenants, attributes, and making them our own. I'll explain this in a second. We live wisely in our relationship with God by taking hold of His covenant attributes and making them our own. Sometimes as Christians, we're lazy. Sometimes we let the Lord take second place in our lives behind whatever is causing us anxiety or whatever is immediately occupying our attention. Sometimes we let the things of this world cloud our vision. Sometimes our own sin damages our relationship and communion with God. Proverbs 3.3 beckons us to renew our vows to the Lord. It calls us to hold fast to the commitment we have made to Jesus Christ as our only Lord and Savior. It calls us to rekindle a lost and forsaken love for the God of our salvation. Verse 3 here undoubtedly echoes Exodus 34 verses 5-7. through I don't know if you're familiar with this passage. It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. It gets repeated throughout the Old Testament more than pretty much any other passage in the Old Testament. And this is what it says. God is with Moses on Mount Sinai, and he reveals to Moses who he is as God. And this is what he said. Verses 5-7 through of Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. Listen to this. This is how God wants to be known to his people. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 3, We are called as God's people to take hold of God's attributes of steadfast love and faithfulness and to reflect them back to Him, to make them our own. As God has demonstrated His steadfast love and faithfulness to us, His church, we are to reflect these attributes back to Him in steadfast love and faithfulness. As followers of Jesus Christ, God has chosen us to be His church, His people, and we have responded to His pursuit of us by pledging ourselves to Him in faith through the contract of baptism. Therefore, in this verse, we are petitioned to hold fast to our pledge and commitment to Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are petitioned to respond to Christ's love and faithfulness by loving and remaining faithful to Him and the others around us. It's as if this verse is commanding us to renew our covenant marital vows to the Lord. It's as if this verse is saying, God has entered into a relationship with you. 
by lavishing His steadfast love and faithfulness upon you. Now you commit yourself to God in steadfast love and faithfulness by the power of the Holy Spirit. What, what does this look like practically? This looks like pursuing a relationship with God in prayer, morning by morning. This looks like immersing yourself in His character through Bible reading. This looks like faithfully participating in the local church, Christ's bride, and showing up for service on Sundays so that you can renew your vows to Him every week. Proverbs 3.3 advises us to bind steadfast love and faithfulness around our necks and to write them on the tablets of our heart. God wants our unadulterated commitment and loyalty. He wants our relationship with Him to be first and foremost in our lives. He demands our fundamental allegiance. Just as I hold fast, just as when I hold fast and remain faithful to my wedding vows to Emma, my wife, I have a healthy relationship with her and others around me, so too when we, the church, when you as a believer in Christ hold fast to your wedding vows to God in steadfast love and faithfulness, you will live a fruitful and healthy and happy life in relationship with Him. That's piece of advice number two. Let's move on to piece of advice number three. We live wisely in our relationship with God by trusting Him with our entire selves and depending on Him for everything. Let me read Proverbs 3, 5-6. through 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. You know these verses. They're some of the most famous verses from Proverbs. And the advice we get from these verses is that we live wisely in our relationship with God by trusting Him with our entire selves and depending on Him for everything. Trust. question for us this morning is, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? As humans, one of our basic postures is a posture of trust. Every morning when I go to sleep, I set my alarm, trusting that it will wake me up at the time that I set it to. Every morning when I wake up and eat breakfast, I trust that what I eat is going to give me the nutrients that I need to get through the day. When I brush my teeth in the morning, I trust the dentist that that's really going to be good and healthy for my teeth. When I clock in at work, I trust that at the end of two weeks, I'm going to get a paycheck. We live in a posture of trust. We're radically dependent on other people and objects for our lives. And some things we we trust in more than others. Some things we put our trust in as the ultimate thing in our lives. Some things we trust in for ultimate meaning. And it's, it's a ludicrous statement to say that only people of faith have trust. Have faith. Even the most anti-religious people have faith in something. The atheist has faith that God does not exist, even though their adamant denial of Him reveals the truth of the existence of God, which they have suppressed deep down in their hearts. Most, some people claim to have faith in science. After all, science is objective. Science produces facts. Now, of course, science does produce Facts, and it's a good and beautiful thing. But the discipline of science constantly changes and develops. If you know anything about science, you know that science requires the interpretation of data, of material. Science itself does not provide ultimate truth. And yet so many people sacrifice their lives at the altar of 
science. So many atheists trust that science can give them a firm foundation for their lives. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. Even if atheists claim to live only by trusting in science as the ultimate value, it's not possible to live that way. Science can't tell me how I ought to live, how I should treat my neighbor. Science can't tell me how to have a healthy marriage. Science can't tell me how to raise kids. It can't tell me right from wrong. Science gives me no reason to believe that I should trust my own conclusions. Some of you trust in yourselves. Some of you think that by your own power and performance, you can win the game of life and procure a life of happiness and a good retirement for yourselves. You think you know best for yourselves. You think that you are the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. This is at least what our culture tells us to do. Follow your dreams. Trust in yourself. Do whatever makes you happy. You do you. You pursue whatever gives you the most self-gratification and pleasure. Some of us trust in relationships for ultimate value and meaning. Some trust that their boyfriend or husband or children or significant other would, can provide them with the meaning that they've always longed for. Others of you trust in wealth, power, and fame. If you can just accumulate enough of these things, then you'll find the fountain of youth, eternal happiness. But we all know that some of the most wealthy people are also some of the most miserable people in this world. The problem is, is that all of these things, science, relationships, money, wealth, power, ourselves, they're not reliable. They are not reliable. They're not to be depended upon. They're too small. They're not worthy of our hope. They fail to provide the happiness that we were created for. A relationship with the triune God. A relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God and three persons. You see, God Himself is the only reliable person of our trust. Because everything gets its existence from Him. Science does. All of our relationships do. Everything is dependent upon God for their being. So only God is worthy of our trust. Why trust in science when you can trust in the eternal God who created the organisms, the mechanisms, and the processes of this world which science seeks to observe? Why trust in the feigning resources of yourself when you can trust in the almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, from whom everything lives and moves and has being? Why trust in the fickleness of human relationships when you can trust in the unchanging, certain, and faithful God who created all things? The basic message of what we believe as Christians is this. We have turned from trusting in the infinite and uncreated God to trusting in finite and created things. But God in His mercy has won back our allegiance, our trust, He has redeemed our self-infatuated, self-gratified, and self-dependent hearts through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Verses 5 and 6 of Proverbs 3 reveal to us that living wisely in a relationship with God in turns turning from trusting in the idol factories of our own hearts and minds to trusting in and submitting to God with our whole lives and our whole selves. Let's move on to piece of advice number four. Proverbs 3, 7 through 8, and it'll speed up from here on out. 
Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Piece of advice number four. We live wisely in a relationship with God by honoring and respecting His evaluation of the world and ourselves above all else. We live wisely in a relationship with God by trusting His evaluation of ourselves and the world above all else. Like Adam and Eve, we all have the tendency to think that we are wise in our own eyes. We think that we know better than God. Often when we approach the Lord, we we try and tame Him. We try to conform Him to our own wise standards and evaluations. Instead of approaching the Lord with fear and trembling, the triune God of the Bible refuses to submit to our standard of wisdom. He demands that we fall down in reverent fear before Him as Job fell down before Him. When we fail to properly fear the Lord and respect His sovereign purposes in this world, we fall into sin by following our own course, our own way, and our own path. And this is what happened to those who rejected and killed Jesus. They committed perhaps the greatest sin ever committed because they were wise in their own eyes and did not submit to the Lord in fear. They thought that surely this lowly carpenter from Nazareth cannot be the Messiah. He doesn't conform to our expectations of the Messiah. He can't be crucified like this. Surely not. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful of being wise in our own eyes because God doesn't often work according to our standards of wisdom. Indeed, a lot of times He works the exact opposite way we would expect. God is found in the manger, not in the palace. God is found as a lowly carpenter, not an elite politician. God normally works through ordinary ways and messy ways like sinful humans and flesh and blood to accomplish His purposes. God has accomplished the greatest salvation for you and for me in all of history through the worst form of capital punishment probably ever invented by humans, through the cross. In order to live wisely in a relationship with God, we must turn from our sinful ways and fall at God's feet saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord, Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so Your ways are from our ways, and so Your thoughts are from our thoughts. As we turn from our own wisdom and submit to God's estimation of the world along the road to wisdom, we will necessarily forsake sin. Our flesh will be healed and our bones will be refreshed, as this proverb says. Piece of advice number five. Let's move on. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Piece of advice number five. We live wisely in a relationship with God by honoring Him with the best of our finances. We live wisely in our relationship with God by trusting Him with the best of our finances. Proverbs 3 uses this as a test to kind of see where our relationship with God is. A practical way to see whether or not we're living wisely in a relationship with the Lord is to see where we put our money. Where does our money go? Disciple Mark, 
in his book, he tells us of a time when Jesus stood outside the temple and was watching people literally put money into the offering, to the treasury. And there's this widow, and she had two coins, and she put in just two coins. But there are these other really wealthy people who were putting in tons and tons and tons of their money. And Jesus says, that widow is the one who honored me with her wealth. Why? It's not how much she gave. It's not how much we give, Shades Valley. It's how we give. As long as we are giving in a way that honors the Lord, we can be sure that He will use us and we will be in a wise relationship with Him. You see, Mark's story in our proverb is not an instruction in how much to tithe. I don't think that's very important, honestly. It's on how to tithe in a way that honors the Lord. See, the question is, is are we like Abel? And do we honor the Lord with our first fruits? Or are we like Cain? And do we honor the Lord as we honor everything else with our wealth? Again, I don't think the amount is necessarily important. I think what is important is that the Lord is honored with our wealth. That is in every single way that we spend our money and use our resources, God is made much of. This is in a piece of advice to live wisely in a relationship with God by using our monies in ways that glorify Him. Now, we need to be careful here as we move on to the next verse. We need to be careful because there are a lot of prosperity gospel teachers, like Brad talked about last week, that will simply rip verses like these out of Scripture and say, look, this proverb says if you give your money to the Lord, He's going to increase your wealth. He's going to give you more possessions and money, and you're going to have an abundance of wealth and happiness and a life of prosperity. But as Brad talked about last week, we need to be people who read our Bibles regularly, diligently, and seriously. These verses alone do not contain all the Bible has to say about wealth. As Brad preached about last week, we need to learn to read the books of the Bible together and in light of one another. Because sometimes, on the one hand, the Lord does bless us with wealth. Where else would it come from? This is not a bad thing. Abraham was a very wealthy man. And sometimes if we do use our wealth wisely, he will provide us with more money and wealth. That's the plain teaching of these verses. However, sometimes the Lord will take away our wealth and financial security as a way of testing us, our faith, as our trust upon him. That's what the whole book of Job is about. Job was a... Now let me, let me sum everything up I said right quick in a few sentences. We live wisely in a relationship with the Lord by honoring him with our wealth and our first fruits. And sometimes the Lord will bless us with more finances if we wisely honor him with our existing finances. However, the point of wisely honoring the Lord with our wealth is not to increase in finances, but to grow closer in trust and dependence upon God at all times. Even if we are honoring the Lord with our finances, He may allow our finances and wealth to be taken away from us so that we grow closer in trust and dependence upon Him. Ultimately, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we need to take up the attitude of Job, which says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or the attitude of David. Who have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let's move on to chapter or 3, verses 11-12. through 12. 
piece of advice number six. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father of the son in whom He delights. Piece of advice number six. We live wisely in a relationship with the Lord by receiving His discipline with patience and humility as a sign of His fatherly care and love towards us. Some of you might immediately think, surely the Lord doesn't discipline us anymore. And I thought that was only for the Old Testament, for Israel. It can't be for us as Christians in Christ. Well, although it might not be an exciting truth to latch on to, sometimes the Lord does discipline us in certain ways. Not trivially, not for no purpose, but to make us more like His Son, Jesus Christ. Now hear me, I'm not saying the Lord punishes us for our sins. Our punishment has been laid upon Christ. However, the Lord sometimes does discipline us in order to grow our relationship with Him and to make us more holy. How do I know that? Well, Hebrews 12 actually quotes these two verses from Proverbs. Hebrews 12, a New Testament book, actually quotes and reiterates these verses from Proverbs. I'll read a few of them for you. Hebrews 12. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here's the quote from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. Let's see what Hebrews has to say about this. This is what it says. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, and this is a very important verse, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them. But the Lord, He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. This is how it ends. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When my sister Claire was much younger, and we were growing up together, we both used to suck our thumbs at night, but she did a little bit more than I did. And maybe you had this same practice growing up, or maybe you have kids that suck their thumbs at night as well. And my parents literally tried everything they could to get her to stop. They tried nail polish, hot sauce, they tried tying a sock around her hand during the night, everything. Now, Claire wasn't doing anything wrong. She wasn't sinfully doing something because she was sucking her thumb. But my parents knew that if they continued to let her suck her thumb, her teeth would be crooked when she grew up. And so they lovingly and mercifully tried to get her to stop in every way they could. And a lot of times, we are like my sister Claire. We embrace patterns of life that are immature and not healthy. And like my parents, the Lord and His grace and mercy will sometimes give us a healthy dose of nail polish or hot sauce in order to ensure our well-being and health as His children. You see, God is in the process of making 
all things new. And a part of this process is making us new. But in order to be new, we need to be holy and without sin. And although it is often painful, God disciplines us in order to make us more holy. And even though we may not see the purpose in our hardship, God's discipline is not something trivial or random, but something intended to deepen and strengthen our trust and dependence upon Him. Hear me. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God is working all things together for your good, for your holiness. Your hardship, your affliction is not God's wrathful punishment upon you. It is is His good and fatherly discipline through which He is making you holy. Jesus has entered into the frailty of our human flesh and suffered alongside of us so that we might receive salvation amidst our hardship and suffering. The biblical teaching on suffering could not be further away than our culture's teaching on suffering. But the way of wisdom wisely embraces God's discipline as a means of growing in holiness and righteousness. Now you're probably thinking at this point, it's been close to four hours. Now I'm getting hungry. I'm ready for some some lunch. And the passage I assigned was actually 1 through 20, and we're at verse 12. So what are we going to do? It's been 45 minutes. Um, I'm just going to read verses 13 through 20, and then offer a few closing remarks. If you want to read with me, that'd be great. Verses 13, chapter 3 of Proverbs. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare to her. Long life is in her right hand, and her left are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She's a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, He established the heavens. By His knowledge, the deeps broke open, and the clouds dropped down the dew. Verses 13-20 through 20 are a hymn, a song to wisdom. They magnify the value of wisdom as the greatest treasure anyone could ever find. After having just received six pieces of advice about how to live wisely in a relationship with God, verses 13-20 through 20 really shows us why living in a relationship with God is truly the best life we could ever live. The wife of wisdom is the best life. Wisdom doesn't always provide you with the best life or the good life according to the world, but it does provide you with the best life according to God. Why? Because it ensures that you will live well in a relationship with your Maker. If our primary focus and desire is on the good life of the world, we will miss out on the best life spent in relationship with our Maker and Creator, Jesus Christ. Remember that these verses started with a father instructing his son, Oh, I don't have children, um, but I do work with the youth here at Shades Valley, and they're kind of like my kids. Uh, my time working with the youth here, my goal has not been simply to provide your kids with something to put on their college application. My goal has not been simply to t- keep your kids out of trouble or out of all of the temptations that come with adolescence. My hope is not just simply that your kids will continue to attend church and college. No, my ultimate goal in youth is to teach your kids what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
and to how to live wisely in a relationship with Him. Because there's nothing more important for them than to have a relationship with the triune God. Parents, fathers, and mothers alike, if you want to give your kids a good life, according to the world, set them up for a life of worldly success, comfort, happiness, security. But if you want to give them the best life, according to the Bible, teach them wisdom. Teach them to trust Christ with every fiber and cell in their bodies. Now, obviously, setting up your kids for a good education and a successful career is a wise thing to do. But, if you do these things to the neglect of teaching your kids wisdom, then your kids are going to have a life of empty materialism when they could have had a relationship with the triune God. Beyond just the immediate parents of this congregation, Shades Valley, we as a body are responsible for raising the kids in this body in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in the way of wisdom. According to Proverbs 13, the possession, verse 13, the possession of wisdom provides a blessed status and situation. Wisdom is the status and fame which never wavers or diminishes because wisdom provides you with the most honorable status in the world, the status of belonging to God and being in a right relationship with Him. According to verse 14, wisdom is a better investment than silver or gold. Wisdom is the investment which never ceases to increase in interest. Because wisdom provides you with an imperishable inheritance which awaits you in Christ Jesus. According to verse 15, wisdom is more precious than rubies. Wisdom is the precious degree that never loses its value because wisdom gives you a knowledge of the Father's never-changing pattern of the world. According to verses 16 through 18, wisdom provides a long, peaceful, and happy life. Wisdom is the savings account that never runs dry. Because wisdom trusts in God, who is himself an infinite repository of riches. Wisdom provides you with an estate greater than any of the Kardashians, any, bigger than any of Jeff Bezos' mansions. Because wisdom provides you with an estate in the eternal house of God. You want your best life now. Your best life now is not the pursuit of material luxury, status, fame, a long life, retirement. Your best life now is the pursuit of wisdom, which is no other than the eternal tree of life, Jesus Christ, in whom God has hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the perfect revelation of how we are to live wisely in a relationship with God. Jesus Christ perfectly submitted himself to the Father's will throughout his life. Jesus' life and teaching, we see a perfect picture of how we are to live wisely in relationship with God. The path of wisdom imitates the wise pattern the Lord has established in creation. Wisdom taps into God's created order in the world. If we want wisdom, we must operate within the order of the only wise Lord, Jesus Christ. The Lord has designed you and me that we might know the Lord of wisdom and reflect his wise character to the world by living wisely upon the earth. The world needs more wise people. The world craves depth, but knows not where to find it. As God's people, by living wisely in a relationship with Him, according to the advice of Proverbs 3, we can image forth our triune God's wise character to the rest of the world. Amen.